You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Welcome to the South Bay Church. Welcome to everybody who is uh, joining us on the live stream. And uh, my name is David Atkins, Dave Atkins, colloquially. Um, But I'm looking forward to sharing a lesson with you today. Uh, We're going to be looking at the book of Hosea. And uh, we have been doing a series of lessons uh, entitled Finding Hope, or the series is Finding Hope. And we've been looking at the minor prophets. And uh, last week, uh, Brian shared with us a... uh, sort of a timeline, and uh, so I'm going to be talking about Hosea. Hosea was a contemporary of Amos, and uh, so if you look at Brian's timeline, Amos and Hosea are in the beginning. They're right at the Assyrian uh, Empire, so eventually the northern kingdom of Israel would be taken over by Assyria. So Hosea was primarily prophesying to the uh, northern kingdom of Isaiah, calling them to repent from their evil ways, turn back to God or else they would face their consequences. And uh, so this morning I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about the prophecies that that Hosea talks about. Um, I want to spend some time on some lessons, I think, that we can learn from the book of Hosea. Because I think the the book of Hosea has a lot to teach us about God. You know, when we think about lessons about, most of the lessons in the church a lot of times, at least in my mind, a lot of times the orientation is what God can do for us, how God helps us. Uh, so it, it's from what God reaches out and helps us with. You know, you think about when we go through these times that are challenging with the whole COVID stuff, you know, a lot of times we're we're calling on God, please give us trust in you. Please help us to trust in you. Uh, please protect us from all the things that are going on. So we're looking from the orientation of God, please help us. Uh, we, don't, we don't know what to do in a lot of these times. So we're asking God, please give us your wisdom. Help us to trust in you. Give us the wisdom to know uh, how to live our life through this challenging time. And when we're fearful, you know, a lot of times what do we do? We pray to him for strength. We pray, God, give us me the strength. Give me the help. Know that you are all powerful, that you're loving. Give me your peace. Give me your security. So a lot of times our relationship with God, we look at it in what God can help us with. We don't, a lot of times, look at the orientation the other way around. How does what we do affect God? Right. What, what about, what does our actions do towards God? And so that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. Now, obviously, God is transcendent. He's, he doesn't need anything from us. I mean, he doesn't need our worship. Uh, he doesn't need our prayers. He doesn't need our service, really, uh, because he is so far above us. But, you know, the Bible teaches that God is a personal God and that God has created us to have a relationship with him. And when you think about a relationship, there's two parties involved, isn't there? And each of those two parties can have an impact or an effect on the other. So how we act towards God is going to have an effect on him. Now, again, we don't really understand how that works because God is so far above us. But, you know, the Bible has a lot of language in it that talks about how God feels about us as his creation and how he feels about our interactions with him. A lot of times if we do think about how we affect God, we mostly think we just make him mad, right? Or or we just do something and and we just picture God up in heaven going, seriously, what is wrong with you people? Uh, But, you know, the book 
of Hosea has a lot of language about how God feels about us. And usually in, in, this, in the book of Hosea, he's using this language to, a, to, the, to the nation of Israel. God's, God is prophesying and Hosea is pro- using God's words to talk about how God feels about his relationship with the nation of Israel. But we can also apply that to us because we really are the spiritual nation of Israel as the church. So let's start thinking about this. Let me give you a couple things to think about to kind of get our minds working on orienting how our actions affect God. How does God feel, do you think, when we take pride in our own accomplishments? When we feel like we're all that and we forget that everything we have comes from God? Do you think that bothers Him? How does God feel when we sin? How does God feel when we turn to other things besides Him for comfort? Things like pleasure, things like drugs or alcohol or sex. How does he feel when we turn to those things instead of turning to him? Do you think that bothers him? How do you feel God, how does God feel about when we continually do our own thing and pay no heed to his commands because we feel like we know what's best for us or we know how to run our life? Does that bother God? Or do we feel like God is so far above us that he doesn't isn't really affected by what happens here on earth. Do we feel like God doesn't really even notice us? Does it make any difference to him what I do? Well, I think we're going to see as we look at some passages in Hosea that God definitely feels these things, and he definitely feels them deeply about his interaction with us. So when thinking about it, let me start with, who is the closest person in your life right now? Think about that. Who do you have in your life that is closer to you than anybody else? Who knows you the best? Who's someone you let your guard down with? Who do you trust with your whole heart? Who do you feel like is a safe place for you? Where you can be totally yourself? Who do you feel like you guys have made a commitment to one another? You know, for most of us that are married, hopefully that's our spouse. That they're the closest relationship we have on earth. Uh, And if you're not married, who is it in your life that you feel like this is the closest person that I have? That I can really be myself with? So imagine if that person was unfaithful to you. Or imagine if that person betrayed you in some way. How bad would that hurt? You know, there's a saying that says, those who are the closest to us are the ones that can hurt us the most. You know, and and if you, anybody listening has experienced, you know, unfaithfulness in your marriage, you know, I, I apologize if these things maybe bring up bad memories. Because I know that can be an extremely difficult thing to deal with and to work through. And yet this is the metaphor that God uses right at the beginning of Hosea to talk about his relationship with Israel. Let's look in Hosea chapter 1. Starting in verse 2, it says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because this land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. So God told him to go and take to him Gomer, an adulterous wife, or a promiscuous wife. And it said that she, had, and she conceived and bore him a son. But look in verse 6. It says, Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And then in verse 
uh, a little bit farther in verse 8, after she had weaned Laruman, which was the name of the daughter, Gomer had another son. So if you notice closely in the first, in verse 3, he says, she conceived and bore him a son, meaning Hosea, but the next two verses don't say him. They just say she bore a daughter, she bore a son. So there's a possibility even that the final two children of Hosea were not even his because she, he had married a promiscuous woman. Now, you got to feel for Hosea. I mean, the poor guy, he, he marries someone. He probably gives her heart to this woman. And yet she is adulterous to him. It, but you have, can you imagine the faith he had to have to obey God in this? But see, God called him as his prophet to do this because God had a message that he wanted to send to this, his people Israel. And what's his message? God sees his relationship with the nation of Israel and his relationship with us as a marriage covenant. And when we turn away or when we leave him or sin against him, it's just like we were being adulterous in a relationship, a marriage relationship with God. That's how God looks at it. That's how God feels about it. That's what he is trying to teach us here in the beginning of Hosea. So think about, does that match, uh, picture, picture or match your picture of God? That he is that personal. You know, I think for many of us, you know, I know for me, even growing up, until I really started learning more about my relationship with God, you know, my picture of God was more as someone who was distant, who was judgmental, who was impersonal, someone who was removed from me, you know, and really didn't take a lot of notice of what went on, what went on in my life unless maybe I messed up and made him mad. And yet Hosea paints a very different picture here of God. He paints a picture of God who was deeply impacted by our decisions and our actions. So how was Hosea, or how does Hosea talk about that, that Israel was unfaithful to God? So we go, if you read through the whole book, there's a lot of, di- there's sort of a pattern that talks a lot about how, you know, he was, uh, Israel was unfaithful to him. There's kind of a pattern, well, you know, it talks about how God provides for Israel, they love him, he loves them, but then he, they follow other gods, they're unfaithful to him, so God calls on them to repent. He tells if you don't repent, these things are going to happen to you, you know, and those things do at times, but, but even that pattern always ends up with God eventually restoring them to his presence. So uh, some of the common ways that Hosea talks about the unfaithfulness of Israel uh, they worshipped other gods. They worshipped idols. It says in uh, an example in Hosea 4.11, says they consult a wooden idol and are answered by a stick of wood. Another way they were unfaithful is they did not acknowledge that God was the source of all that they have. They forgot who gave them everything. Hosea 2, verse 8, she, which is talking about Israel, has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, and lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. I mean, look at that. God gave them all this stuff. He gave them silver and gold. And what do they do? They turn around and use it for Baal. You talk about a slap in the face to God. And then, when they started to feel the punishment of their sins, when they started feeling the consequences, instead of turning back to God and repenting, they looked to others for protection. They looked to this nation of Assyria and, and Egypt to help them out. Hosea 5.13 When Ephraim, which is referring to Israel, 
saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he is not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. So they went, even when they were feeling what God wanted them to feel, the pain, they didn't turn back to him. They went to somebody else. They were unfaithful to him. And one of the problems with what's going on here in Israel is that they had gotten so far away from following God that they didn't even really know God. They didn't know what he really wanted. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. They didn't really know God. And because they didn't know him, because they didn't have the knowledge, you know, when they wanted to change, they went about the wrong way. They, either, they would turn to somebody else, or even when they tried to do the certain things they thought were that should be done, they were not what God really wanted. And if you look in Hosea chapter 6, we'll see a little example of this. So in Hosea chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it seems like here Israel is starting to realize, i got to turn things around. So, he, so Israel says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he, will, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So here we see, you know, it seems like Israel is starting to get it. I need to, we need to return back to God. We need to acknowledge him. Now let me throw in something for the Bible nerds that, that, uh, that Brian talked about last. If you look there in verse 2, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will restore us. Some scholars think that is leading to Jesus' resurrection on the third day. Something to think about. All right. But you see Israel here starting, we get the feeling like, hey, they, they finally understand, okay? We need to turn back to God. We need to acknowledge God. <coughs> but what is God's response? Let's look in verse 4. This is how God responds to this. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the, mouth, with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. Whoa. Different reaction from God as to what Israel felt like they were doing, right? So obviously, there's a disconnect here. Israel feels like, Yes, we're doing this stuff. We're acknowledging God. But God's like, no, you guys aren't even close. You are not acknowledging me the way that I want to. And what's the reason here? What's the problem? Look in verse 6. God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Again, they thought they were acknowledging God, but they were going about it the wrong way. God says, you're not acknowledging me. And this is where the title of our lesson, Mercy Not Sacrifice, comes from. And we're going to look at this in a little bit in depth. We'll look at this a couple different ways, this idea of mercy and not sacrifice. Because God wasn't looking necessarily for burnt offerings. He really was looking for the heart. So let's talk about this a little bit, this idea of mercy versus sacrifice. You know, one of the things is this verse, Hosea 6.6, actually is mentioned by Jesus twice in the book of Matthew. 
If you look over in Matthew chapter 9, we'll read one of the instances where Jesus uses this verse. It says, uh, in verse 10, Matthew 9, verse 10, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what's the point Jesus is trying to get across here? You know, the Pharisees were upset that Jesus was spending time with tax, tax collectors and sinners. You know, and the Pharisees didn't realize that really they were sinners, right? They didn't see themselves as sinners. And that may have been because they were really into making all the correct sacrifices in the law of Moses. And so they felt like, hey, we've done all these sacrifices, so we're sinless. We have no sin. We're not sinners. And that's not how Jesus saw it, and that's not the truth. You know, Hebrews 10.4 says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They didn't realize that the only one that can take away sins is Jesus, the man that they are talking to right here. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the only one that can make you sinless, mm -hmm. not their actions and that type of thing. So they didn't understand what mercy and sacrifice Jesus was talking about. Right. That's why Jesus said, you need to go figure that out. We'll think about that. So let's talk about this a little bit. Mercy versus sacrifice. So when I think about it, I think sacrifice is kind of relates to actions, things that we do, uh, specific things that are laid out that need to be done, you know, rules and procedures, sort of like the law of Moses. You do this, you, you sacrifice a dub, whatever. Mercy, though, is more involves the heart. It more involves relationship, just more relationship oriented. It's not rigidly defined as like a sacrifice, as like rules and stuff. You know, how do you define mercy? It's, you know, there, there's not really that word, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to put into action or, or hard to define. And when we look at things from a sacrificial mindset or a sacrificial viewpoint, it's sort of like a legal relationship, you know, a series of do's and don'ts. So, for example, we find out that we've done something wrong, that we violated a contract. So we figure out what the damages are. Okay, how much do I need to, to pay because of this violation? We calculate the amount, we pay it to the proper party, and now we're back good, we're no longer in violation. That's how things work in the sacrificial mindset. But part of the problem with this is when you have that sacrificial mindset, where's the heart in that? There's really no heart, right? You can just go through the right actions, you can just pay the money or whatever it is, and not have your heart involved at all. You can just go through the motions and not be emotionally connected at all. So the sacrificial mindset isn't really what God wants. And I think that's part of what Israel's problem was, that they were doing all these sacrifices, but their heart wasn't engaged, their heart wasn't involved. And God didn't have any use for that. But when we think of things from a mercy mindset, our mindset is more on a relationship, on the relationship. When we find out we have sinned or hurt someone, then hopefully we feel remorse, right? We ask for forgiveness and mercy. Mercy involves the heart. It's not defined, again, by exact rules and stuff. It's, it's heart. It's, it's your emotions. Right. 
uh, and that's hard to define. You know, emotions is, is an area that a lot of us are not super comfortable with a lot of times because it's they're emotional. So let me give you an example of the sacrificial versus a mercy mindset. Okay, so let's say that, now this would probably never happen, but let's just say I say something stupid and hurt Mary's feelings. Okay, like that, that can never happen, right? Never happen. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, <laughs> I, I do something stupid, which unfortunately can happen and does happen, and hurt Mary's feelings. So when I realize that, what do I do? I say, oh, I'm sorry. Here, here's 50 bucks. Go buy yourself something nice. And then I look and say, so we're good, right? So how, how do you think that's going to go over? <laughs> the crowd's already laughing. What's she going to say? Uh, no, we are not all right. In fact, we aren't even close to all right. Matter of fact, you're moving away from all right with that type of a stuff. And what if I say, well, what's your problem? I said I was sorry, and I gave you money, money that I worked for. What do you want from me? Who are you calling? Stephen, wait, Stephen, Jackie, no, put the phone down. Um, what's the problem here? I'm looking at it from a sacrificial mindset and not a mercy mindset. I think I just need to sacrifice something, just give some money, and that'll solve the problem. That'll just take care of everything, right? But in a relationship, especially a marriage relationship, doesn't work like that. Those of you that are married understand what I'm saying. I need to have the mercy mindset. When I do something stupid and hurt Mary's feelings, I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to ask for mercy from her. So this is what, thinking back to Israel and God, they were thinking from a sacrificial mindset. Hey, God, we're sacrificing bulls. We're sacrificing whatever. We're doing all the right stuff. We're good, right? And God's saying, no, your heart is not involved because you need to ask for mercy you need to realize that you have hurt me and that there's nothing you can do to really restore the relationship until I decide to heal it. And when I forgive you, not when you make enough of the right sacrifices. So mercy is about emotions and the heart. It's not just our actions. Our heart has to be involved. And yeah, like I was saying, many of us, and me included, are not comfortable with action. I mean, we're more comfortable with action. You know, when we, we, we need something to do, you know, like, like, how can I make up for what I've done? You know, just tell me what I need to do and so I can be right again. And we think that way a lot of times, right? And then when we, in our relationship with God, when God says, well, you, there's really nothing you can do to make it up. You just need to ask for my mercy. It's hard for us to understand and accept that. Because we think that, you know, there's got to be something we can do, right? And sometimes we even go to feel like, we need to be punished, okay? We've done something wrong. We need to be punished. We've, you know, you, you can't just forgive us. We need, we need to be punished in some way. We've got to sacrifice something. We've we got to hurt <clears throat> we can, before we feel forgiven. We've got to feel pain before we can feel forgiven. But God continually says, mercy, not sacrifice. And I think it's just hard for us to grasp. It's hard for me to grasp. You know, because a lot of times I have a hard time feeling forgiven. And yes, I believe in God's grace. And yes, I know and I believe there's nothing I can do to make up for my sin. And yet I still kind of at times feel like it's hard for me to accept that. It's hard for me to do something. You know, when we sin against God, we got to look at it not as that we've broken a law, but that we've broken a relationship. 
that we've damaged our relationship with God through our sin, and that in some and um, and we've hurt ourselves in our relationship with God. Sin, I wrote, I wrote this down. Sin is not just breaking a rule; it's breaking a heart, God's heart. Let me share a story from my own life that helped me a little bit. I've got a long way to go, but helped me a little bit to understand this kind of concept a little bit. So one of our kids, I will try not to say who it was, was involved in a lot of sin when he was in, he was in high school. Okay, I've already said he, it's one of the boys. I told you I was going to try. He was involved in a lot of sin in the high school, but he was very good at keeping it hidden. So Mary and I had no idea what was going on. So this went on for a number of months, and then it, and finally, on, on his own, he got to the point where he goes, I can't be doing this. And so he stopped doing all the stuff that he was doing that was sinful. But he still felt like, he still didn't feel good. He still felt, I, I, I need to confess to my parents. I, I want them to know, you know, what I had been involved in, even though he had stopped doing it. He really felt like we should know, you know, what he had been a part of. And so, fortunately, he had a spiritual mentor in his life, so he went to him first, and they talked, and, and so this brother, you know, brought us all together, and our son came and confessed to us all the things he'd been involved with. Now, what really impacted me was not the sin that he was involved in, okay? What really hit me was that when he was, you know, confessing, when he was sharing about all that he had been involved in and stuff, he said at one point that he had seriously thought about just leaving and running away and never coming back because he felt like he had no longer deserved to be in our home. He thought it would be easier for everybody, including us, if he just went away because of how sinful he was. Now, when I heard that, it, it's hard to express how that hit me. The thought of him leaving and us never knowing where he was and ever seeing him again, I, I couldn't even think about that. It, it made no difference what he had done, what he had been involved in. You know, I, I never would have thought that the solution was him to leave forever. But see, that is how he felt. He had sinned in his mind. He did not deserve to be in our family. And the only thing in his mind that could make up for that was to leave and to never come back. In a way, he felt like, you know, that he needed punishment, and that was a just punishment, was for him to leave. In my mind, though, as his father, and as a father, the, the thought of not having him around and gone from our life was way worse than anything he could have been involved in. It didn't matter what he had done. I'll try to get through this. <laughs> Having him leave the family would never in a million years have occurred to me. And that's what hit me so hard. The pain of, wow, what if he had followed through on this? The pain of what he had been involved in. And yeah, it was challenging to hear some of the things that he had done. You know, it, it was painful for Mary and I. But it was nowhere near the pain we would have felt or I would have felt if he had left and gone forever. And thank the Lord he did not do that. He got help. We, we, he, we forgave him. We welcomed him back. And, and, and it was good. But see, I thought, as I thought about it, I learned in that interaction a little bit, I think, of how God feels towards us. Kind of what we're talking about here. The mercy versus sacrifice. See, separation 
is the last thing that God wants from us. And he's done everything he can to show us that he wants a relationship with him. He wants to be merciful. He doesn't want these sacrifices. He wants our heart. He knows that no sacrifice we could ever do would make up for whatever we've done. He just wants us to ask for forgiveness and mercy. And, you know, sometimes if we feel like we can just do enough right things, that's just Satan telling us that that's false, that we can never do enough. There's, there's no right sacrifice. There's no right number of sacrifice. There's no right way to sacrifice that can ever make up for what God has done for us. And so it's hard for us to understand this, and I think the reason is because we just don't think the way that God thinks. Because God is different from us. He doesn't look at things the way we do. And I think one of the great things that we can learn in Hosea is Hosea gives us a glimpse of how God looks at things. It looks at how God, what God's perspective is. And it's very different from our perspective. Here's an example. Hosea chapter 11. So we're going to look at two different mindsets here, kind of, or how we, how we can look at things. So if you start in verse 1 of... Uh, Hebrew, or Hebrews, Hosea 11. When, this is God. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. I tied the yoke of their neck and, or I mean, excuse me, I lifted the yoke of their neck and bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent, swords will flash in their cities and will destroy the bars of their gates and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, He will by no means exalt them. So what is he saying here? He says, I've done everything for Israel. He uses, you know, incredibly emotional language here. About, you know, I lifted cords of human kindness. And he goes, I did everything. And But at the end he says, they are, in verse 7, my people are determined to turn from me. So God says, even if they call to the Most High, He will by no means exalt them. So at this point, you know, from our mindset, we're like, hey, Lord, I totally understand where you're coming from. <laughs> I mean, you have done so much for Israel. You have repeatedly forgiven them. And yet they've continued to reject you. They've forgotten what you've done. They've turned to Egypt. They've turned to Assyria. And they still didn't turn to you. So yes, if they call on you like you do in verse 7, he goes, I understand, we understand, you will not exalt them. That makes total sense to us. But God's not like us. Let's read in verse 8. Here's what God goes on to say. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboam? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. I will not 
nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. God looks at things different than we do because he is God and not man. Our series is entitled Finding Hope. How can we find hope through the book of Hosea? By knowing that God is not like us. He may allow us to suffer. He may allow times of captivity in our life. He may allow us to experience the consequences of our sin. He may allow times of suffering and trials, but He will never, ever forsake us. And His plan is always to bring us back to His side. He says at the end of verse 11, I will settle them in their homes. God is always wants to bring us back. He's never going to forsake us forever. You know, so this morning as we look through this in Hosea, I'm hope, I hope that I'm helping you, hopefully a little bit in a deeper way, see how God looks at you, how God looks at his relationship for you, how what we do impacts God, even though he is so far above us. God is relational. He is personal. He's not an impersonal judge just waiting to hit us with a hammer. When we sin, it hurts God. It's like breaking our relationship with him, and he feels it. It's not a rule book where we have to follow X number of things for reconciliation. The only reconciliation comes through the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. Our response when we sin should not be to look for a bunch of laws to, to, or sacrifices or whatever. We should repent and ask for God's mercy and ask for him to restore us to fellowship with him. Amen. You know, closing out here in a minute, you know, David understood this. Look over in Psalms 51. You know, David had sinned greatly against God with Bathsheba. And when he finally realized it, he wrote this psalm. And I won't read the whole thing, but just look in, look in verse 1. What does David start off with? The very first verse of Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your compassion, blot out my transgressions. He starts off, David knew, I need mercy. Drop down to verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, David understood exactly where God was coming from. Israel in Hosea's time had no idea what he was talking what God was talking about. But David knows. He knew I need mercy. You don't want all these sacrifices. Those aren't any good to you. The only sacrifice that you want, God, is a broken and contrite heart. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here together. And I think the Lord's Supper is a time where we can examine ourselves before God. When we can look at our lives and we can see how much we owe God. 
how much he has done for us on the cross. But I think there's also a temptation here when we use this time to really think about our lives. The temptation is we can look at sometimes and, and feel like, <clears throat> if we look back over our past week, we can feel like, man, I had a bad week, God. You know, I said some things that I shouldn't have. I did some things I shouldn't have. I, I, I thought some things I shouldn't have. So this week's going to be different, God. This week I'm going to do, I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. To make up for all those things I did. Is that really what God wants? All of our little sacrifices we're going to pledge to do this week? Let's don't do this this morning, okay? Let's don't do that. Let's do this. Let's kneel before the cross and simply ask for mercy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the lessons we can learn through Hosea. Thank you, God, that you are the God you are. And Father, as we take this time to remember your son's sacrifice, help us blot everything else out of our mind except our need for your mercy. God, we don't deserve it in any way, but God, we humbly beg you to have mercy on us. Have mercy because of our sin. Have mercy because how we've hurt you. Please forgive us because of in our ignorance or whatever. We've, we don't see how the impact we have on you. God, our, our prayer this morning is simply for mercy. We offer this through your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.